Imagine suddenly being pulled back in time without warning or explanation. Where is the place you'd least like to go? In the 1979 novel Kindred, author Octavia Butler sent her main character, a black woman, back to the antebellum south of the 1800s. Dana lands among her ancestors on a slave plantation. The sci-fi book is a modern classic, a cornerstone of dark fantasy that made waves in a genre dominated by white men. Kindred is still being discovered by new readers today and now by viewers. We just, like, fell through the Matrix, Dana. There just has to be some way that that we can prove that this is real, that, that this actually happened. Prove it to who? And And what would that do? Make it stop? No. What if you never go back? What if Rufus is fine? It happens when he panics. I'm definitely going back. It's just a matter of when. That's from the new FX series Kindred, streaming now on Hulu. After the break, executive producer, showrunner, and writer Brandon Jacobs Jenkins joins us to discuss the show and why Octavia Butler's work still resonates with readers and now viewers decades later. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to cover. Stay with us. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. He's the executive producer, showrunner, and writer of the new FX series, Kindred. He's also a playwright whose work earned him a MacArthur Genius Grant. And Brandon joins us from Seattle. Hi, Brandon. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super honored to be on the call. Well, well, give us some more context for the scene we just heard. What's happening in that moment? Yeah, that scene comes from the, I think, fourth episode of the series, um, and that's after Dana's fourth trip to the past. But uh, what's important is that last trip, she's managed to bring back her uh, newly found situationship, a guy named Kevin Franklin. Um, And they've just sort of managed to get out by the skin of their teeth. And they're also getting closer to understanding or solving the puzzle of why this is happening to her or what is happening to her. Now, Octavia Butler's Kindred has sold over a million copies, and some of, some of those ended up in your hands. Here's Tracy in College Park, Georgia. As a Black person who loves and writes science fiction, Octavia E. Butler is everything to me. Her timeless stories plop humans and aliens of color at the center of complex, relevant matters. Tracy, thanks for that message. Brandon, how did you first come to Octavia Butler's work? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I was a gigantic. I mean, my first way into reading was through speculative fiction. I really, well, I was reading things called goosebump books at oh, the yeah. time. But <laughs> yeah, when I kind of graduated into, quote, grown up literature far too early, it was like Stephen King. It was Ray Bradbury. It was all of these sort of amazing uh, like Ursula Le Guin, all these like amazing kind of sci-fi writers who had their peak in the mid-century, that kind of golden age. And um, I had a babysitter at the time uh, at Howard University. She's a pre-med student named Kim Heller. And she just came over one day and noticed my bookshelf. And she was like, I think you might be interested in this woman named Octavia Butler. Um, because, you know, the truth is this bookshelf was almost entirely white men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um 
And, you know, the next time I saw her, she brought me her own kind of pocketbook um, copies of what are now known as the Patternist series. Uh, it was Pattern Master, Wild Seed. Um, and these were sort of Octavia's first kind of series of books she devoted to, to. And I just like devoured them. It was a big revelation for me because it was the first time I'd ever seen brown people on the cover of these books. And they were in very cool landscapes. And it was a gold foil uh, kind of deco, deco uh, very like Gustav Klimti, the vibe of that, the cover of those books. And, um, and at the time, this is pre Amazon. So you had to like go to bookstores and hope that the books you wanted were there. But somehow over the course of like six or seven years, I managed to amass a pretty full collection of her books and was pretty devoted. And she felt like a, you know, she felt like a secret at that time, you know, she wasn't quite mainstream the way she is now. And I really enjoyed having that kind of private love affair with her, her work and her mind. I was a huge speculative fiction reader when I was growing up as well. And mm. I would sort of inherit books from my older siblings. And I right. found Octavia Butler when I think I was about 14 years old. I oh read gosh. Kindred. And I, I re- remember that same moment of, I can only call it revelation, to see myself right. reflected in a genre I I loved. Give me some insight into, you, you said it, it was meaningful to see these brown faces on the cover of these books, but as an artist, do you think that that had a deeper impact on you and how you approach your work today? Oh, I mean, 100,000%. You know, I think at the time, I, I definitely was nursing these early aspirations towards being a writer. And the only models I had at the time, I think I was in like third grade when Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize in literature. And that was a really profound moment for my family and my community because it was like, oh my God, there's a Black writer and the whole world knows that she's the best thing since sliced bread. But at the time, my interest skewed towards the speculative. I wanted to write things that took place in space that sort of had these heady concepts or kind of philosophies or genre elements behind them. And there really was no representation in that space at all. So seeing her and really, I mean, she was, she's the pioneer, I think we can all agree in terms of that genre. It gave me permission to think more broadly about following my own interests and following the things that intrigued me as a writer and an artist, you know, Um, and also thinking about how there was room in the imagination to talk through these questions of identity and belonging, which I think plague any 13-year-old, but definitely kind of a a Black-identified, burgeoning, queer-identified, you know, writer in D.C. in the 90s, you know? So I want to, I heard you say something there um, that really stood out to me. You said it it gave you permission to Mm -hmm. explore these these other facets of your writing or, or approaching your writing in a different way. And I I don't know why the word permission stood out to me, but it but it mm. did. What what does that mean for you to be given permission to do that? I think because it's easy to feel odd with your imagination as a young person. You know, you sort of like I said, it feels like a secret that you had to read Octavia Butler. That somehow you're not seeing reflected in the imaginary or the or the culture more broadly some sort of normalized. Um, depiction of yourself and your own kind of specific ambitions, I suppose. And it's easy to kind of allow, you know, to hide that part of yourself from the wider world, to feel, to attach feelings of shame or strangeness to what are very kind of like basic 
desires for a young person, you know, which is to express themselves, to explore the things that interest them, you know, and often you require something or someone out there to say to you, you know, yeah, it's not normal yet, but it can be, or it's not impossible kind of bridge to cross. And that's just what she embodied. And that's what she, I think she still embodies to me. I mean, I love to go back and look at some of her old interviews where she is literally, <laughs> you know, so self-actualized and just, I mean, there's a great quote I'm going to completely botch. I think she's actually doing an NPR interview where someone asked her, did you feel sort of self-conscious about, you know, wandering into these sort of foreign waters for a Black woman creatively? And she was like, no. <laughs> she says, I, I, she's like, I, I knew what I wanted and I thought I could have it without question, basically. And so I went for it. And that sort of confidence to have a model of that confidence in any sort of creative field is like gold. You know, it's absolutely gold for anybody, no matter who you are. Well, while working on this adaptation, you also looked at drafts of the novel in Butler's archive at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. What did you discover from looking at those earlier versions of the book? Oh, my gosh. I mean, first of all, that she was just an incredibly, incredibly rigorous artist. Like she tried, she wasn't someone who sat down and sort of was inspired and wrote down the first thing that came to her and published it. She really worked at every single idea she had until she, there was no more to work. And she just had so many, she just explored every path of the forest. And it really made me appreciate the book that we have because it was clearly the work of so much thought and effort and just hard won understanding. But also I remember, you know, around that time, I was very much in touch with Marilee Heifetz, who was her literary executor and was her life, pretty much her lifelong agent. And she once shared with me that this was the book that she never, Octavia never felt like she quite cracked. And I found that really haunting because, you know, it's like her, like you said, it's a million, it's probably her best-selling book, right? And I was like, what is it that she, was she trying to do that she didn't feel like she cracked? And being able to immerse myself in kind of the fullness of all of her attempts, all of her iterations, I made some like really interesting discoveries that wound up inspiring very significant parts of our adaptation. Um, And I was able to also kind of assess those moments where I felt like she wasn't quite at the level of craft she needed to be to crack these bigger conversations. And can, can you give us an example of, of one of the things you feel like you were able to maybe flesh out a little bit more that she was still trying to crack in the novel? Yeah, I think that she was very much obsessed with, um, you know, this book was originally part of the Patternist series, which is a series of books that explores the descendants of this kind of magical creature man named Doro and um, thinks in all of his children sort of have special powers. And it's this broader sort of exploration of inheritance and um, sort of the weaponizing of identity as experienced over like many, many eras and epics, because um, a lot of Doro's kids are Um, They're all related, but a lot of them are are what we would call people of color in this sort of weird, fictive universe. And um, and she sort of conceived Kindred as a part of that series, but she decided to sort of like snip it out. But she wound up, as a result, making Dana a very kind of mysterious orphan in the book. I think she was a little bit inspired by Superman. And I really, you know, I felt like the book is called Kindred. And really, she was trying very hard to think deeply about family in all directions. And I thought to myself, well, what happens if I, you know, knowing the rest of her work and how much she returned to um, these questions of family, what if I gave her more family, Mm. ultimately, um, to kind of ping off of and sort of give dimension to her anxieties and her experience? Brandon, you've been working on this TV series for 10 years. I sure have. Why did it take a decade? (laughs) 
Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, people always said that Octavia was ahead of her time. I think in some funny ways, we are that time that she was ahead of. And um, I think that early on, I mean, we, we I began pitching this in 2010. It was just an era of, I mean, it was the Obama years. It was just an era of people, at least in that first term, wanting to start throwing, using this word post-race, right? We didn't want to actually talk at all or believe that the past in some ways was a thing still haunting us or whatever. Um, and of course, you know, 2016 is when we uh, brought it to, to FX and they came on board. It was a different era mm-hmm. and a different moment. And I think in some ways as a culture, there was an experience of a very surprising backslide happening that I think in a lot of ways echoes Dana's experience in the book, you know, becomes an interesting metaphor for it. Um, but also television itself and, and Hollywood itself had to open its mind to this idea of, Black voices and Black characters and Black-centered work that was trafficking in speculative genres. You know, I think um, it really helped the success of Get Out. I felt a real kind of shift or thawing in the culture around that. I think Atlanta did a lot of work to kind of prove to people that you could kind of be Black and weird and people would be interested in it. Um, so in some ways, it was a lot of sitting and waiting for the culture as a large, as a, as a broader entity to become receptive to what she's been up to for, you know, 45 years now. Now you made several changes to Butler's original work. You alluded to some of this and it includes a new subplot that involves Dana's mother. I think what we better do is figure out exactly what's happened to us. I think it might have something to do with Rufus. What is your connection to that boy? I don't know. Isn't he what brought you here? Oh, then how did you get here? So in that scene, Dana and her mother are discussing why and how they both traveled back in time to the same place. And in your adaptation, Dana's believed her mother died in a car accident for for decades. What did the inclusion of the mother into this adaptation help you explore about family, but also about intergenerational Mm -hmm. trauma? Yeah. Well, I was super interested in the idea that, um, you know, early on there's a decision made to set it in 2016. And I really wanted to somehow hold the reality of the fact that so much um, had evolved in our thinking, in our in our ideas about sort of Black femalehood specifically, but just like Black, black subject, subjectivity more broadly since 1979, which is when this book was published. And I wanted to make sure there was some way in our show to have some sort of cross-generational um, conversations about the ideas and what was at stake for Dana in a way that um, Octavia didn't just simply didn't have in 1979. These were characters who would have likely, in her book, have never been taught about slavery, you know, in school. And here we are in a world where we're fighting to keep it on syllabi, but there's just been so many advancements in terms of our understanding of our own history. So I felt like there was something about having this mother who herself um, went through what Dana is going through in 2016. She went through this in the early 90s and trying to capture the spirit of a woman from that era, you know, on the other side of the century and seeing how she might actually ping off against this very specific set of circumstances happening to them. Well, let's step back into our mailbox. This is Hillary in Washington, D.C. Just like Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, whom I really applaud for bringing Kindred to the screen. I love Octavia Butler, and I haven't seen Kindred on screen yet, but 
I just, you always encounter this Hollywoodization issue when something that you really love then gets adapted for the screen, but I just really wonder why he changed the relationship between the protagonist, Dana, and her husband. But I do look forward to seeing Kindred on screen, and uh, as I say, I love Octavia Butler, and when are we going to get to see Parable of the Sower? A Parable of the Sower is a 1993 uh, sci-fi novel by Octavia Butler about a woman displaced from her home due to climate change. But to Hillary's question, Brandon, in, in the novel, Dana and her love interest, Kevin, have been married for a while, and in your version... They're just meeting. They're just starting to date. You called it a situationship. Why was that a change you wanted to make? Well, I mean, it's so, it's so interesting. I actually love the reaction that we're getting from this because I think people should go back and look at the novel. You know, um, our heroes in the novel get married after four months of dating, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And he's actually not, I think, if we really asked ourselves, like, is this an amazing <laughs> relationship for marriage? I think people should really, it's been really interesting. I would say that for me, you know, early on, there was, again, this strong um, kind of choice made with the blessing of the estate, obviously, to set the show in 2016. And it really forced us to look at every single thing we were taking for granted about the texture of this world. And one of those things was sort of gender expectations, expectations around courtship. And when the writers and I begin to sort of poke at um, different things, it began to feel questionable about how to represent this exact marriage in faithfulness to the book in the contemporary moment. You know, in the book, they're about 10 years apart. He presents as very angry looking. He has like a shock of white hair. He has these steely eyes that um, she she describes in the book as intimidating of people. You know, they're both writers, but when they're married, he expects her to sort of type up his manuscripts and become a secretary. And she kind of sloughs this off. And it just became really strange for me to imagine a young woman in 2016, again, given history as it's evolved since 1979, really putting up with this mm-hmm. in a way that felt compelling and, um, you know, useful in this time period. And there was an, you know, there's also lots of questions to talk about economically, like they're part of a creative class in the 1970s that really doesn't exist now. The sort of gig economy is a very different thing. And the idea that they'd buy a house on his paperback advance and her sort of temp work in Pasadena just became a little bit like, okay, we really need to think through what what is this? And I it, honestly, again, I went back to Octavia and I asked myself, well, what was she trying to do in this moment with this choice? And in 1979, I'm sure she wrote this in about steps from 76 to 78, you know, she's, we're like a few years out of loving in versus Virginia. And the idea of an interracial marriage was an incredibly radical thing to represent. And I think she was ultimately trying to force us to ask questions about the plausibility of true love in a context that seems to want to always step in the way of it. And I feel like for, for myself and the writers in the room, we began to be attracted to the danger of trying to represent in real time um, an interracial relationship, you know? And I think our end game is like, can we build, given the way that time works in the show, can we build a convincing and complex marriage over the course of our series in the present tense, rather than relying as the book does on these flashbacks at the top of every chapter. So it's been fairly controversial and, and, you know, there's both sides to the argument that I, I actually totally hear, but I just wanted to, again, make 
what was at stake in this book and the dangers inherent in this relationship just more vivid to a contemporary audience, right? And it seemed important that there be this risk of them not come, not getting together, mm-hmm. you know, being able to choose other, other than themselves, you know, because again, the book is in first person. I was curious about like how might more of a camera living with Kevin, you know, just bring things to the fore that might be unspoken um, in the book. We're talking to Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. He's the showrunner, writer, and executive producer of the TV series Kindred, adapted from the novel of the same name. You mentioned uh, the NPR interview Octavia Butler uh, did. She was on Fresh Air in 1993. Let's listen to a bit. I read um, a lot of science fiction as a kid. And, of course, that meant reading boys' books Mm -hmm. because that's what um, kids' science fiction was. Um, I made up my own stories to um, put myself in them. I wound up writing science fiction from the point of view of girls and women just because I was a girl and I am a woman. I wound up writing science fiction from the point of view of black people because I am black. But I've I've also um, explored and 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 in I in a, a strange sense I suppose found out what it might be like to be a white male or whatever you know one of the things writing does is is allow you to be other people without actually being locked up for it. Brandon, where do you see correlations between yourself and and your writing and what you found in Octavia Butler? Hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's about the fact that for her and for so many people, it begins as being a reader, right? That you're doing something because it has given you so much pleasure and, and focus and joy and sensation and wisdom in your life that you just want to participate in this great thing called storytelling because it's just so essential to yourself. And it's just, I've always tried to root it in, in the love for the thing, you know, love for reading. I love reading. I love watching television. I love going to the theater and that's really where it should start. You know, it's not about getting rich, you know, it's about, you know, it's just a curiosity that brings you, she calls it a positive obsession. You know, it's the thing that just brings you through life and gives it shape. And I think too, you know, this notion of storytelling is the space where you get to explore identity. You get to explore empathy. You get to imagine what it's like to be someone else and exercising those muscles yield all sorts of positive results in other areas of your life, you know? Um, And I just also think that there's an interesting nonchalance. Um, but people call it, quote, being unapologetically Black. But, you know, I've never once not felt like myself. <laughs> and so why can't myself be a part of this act of creation? Why, why do I have to apologize for my history or ask for permission again to tell the stories about myself and my family and the things that concern the human beings in my life, you know, as opposed to some kind of, you know, imaginary audience of random viewers, you know, really about centering, being unafraid to center yourself as a receiver of story and teller of story is really one of her most profound legacies. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's
Let's get back to our conversation. Brandon, last year I spoke to filmmaker Barry Jenkins about his TV adaptation of a different book, The Underground Railroad, and the series like yours depicts pretty violent and and brutal scenes of slavery. And I asked Barry a question I wondered while also watching Kindred, and that's how did you navigate the line between accurate portrayal and fetishizing black trauma? And here's what Barry Jenkins said. I tried to use my own my own sort of like view uh, as a moral, as an ethical compass. And I, and I always had to be aware of the scene that we could make and the scene that we were making. Um, and also trying to, you know, excavate the, the scene and, and really understand like wh- why we're showing and, and what we're actually unearthing. How, how did you approach that, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you use the word fetish, right? Because I think of fetish as a thing that you kind of, you are consuming or, or standing apart from and um, and receiving in some way. And I think for me, I had a very strong impulse, which is, I would say, is in all of my work, to not aestheticize violence. Because violence, to me, what's most interesting or important about it is aligning a viewer or reader with the experience of the one suffering. And so, you know, we'd make these very clear choices to never present the violence as sort of obje- objective composition, but really trying to find ways through sound, through um, through cutting, through performance to bring an audience as close as possible to the mind of the person who is going through mm. the the trauma in some way. Um, and I, I think that's gone over quite well. And it's not to actually knock anyone who does that otherwise. I think everyone makes sort of aesthetic calls with this issue. Um, but I certainly am someone who's felt like I've seen this violence um, portrayed many times in in some classics of the various genres. And I was curious if there was a different way to ask us to experience this pain, basically. You know, it's, it, watching the series, it took me back to that first reading of Kindred um, I had when I was a, a young teenager. And the same tension existed for me, or, or I experienced the same tension or stress. I was like, oh, I'm stressed out. This is, this is hard. <laughs> um, because, because of that overwhelming sense of of danger the danger just around the corner danger that's just always a little too close until it actually catches you and i was i was found myself wondering whether in the creation of the series you you experience that like on the creative side of things. Are you experience that, experiencing that same tension, that same stress as you put the characters into these different situations? Mm. I think you have to. You mean in the, sort of the writing of it yeah. and the building of the world? Yeah. yeah, I think you have to because I think any decent writer is going through the experience that they're putting their characters through in some way. And you're you're trying to shape it as you move through it. And I would say I've always felt like this is a very... I actually don't think of this as a sci-fi book. And I think, I think, you know, Octavia Butler herself did not think of it as sci-fi, but it really is a bit of like almost like a gothic romance or, or a psychological thriller. Like it always, it lives to me in the same line of movies like Rebecca mm-hmm. or like some writing by Nathaniel Hawthorne, where there's just a general air of dread, you know, that these characters are moving through. There's this sense of the universe being p- capable of betraying you in significant and kind of incomprehensible ways. And, 
that's almost like Lovecraftian in that way. And I think that is, that to me is a sensation that makes, that sets this novel and hopefully the series itself apart from other, um, other sort of similar works like it. Well, that echoes this message we got from Liz in Arlington, Virginia, who says, I read Kindred this past year and was fascinated by it. I ended up reading a lot about the book, and I think Butler didn't consider this science fiction at all, but more historical fiction. And Angie tweeted, I have the same connection to Dana as I do to Seeley in The Color Purple. To see Kindred through Mallory Johnson's Dana's eyes was more emotional and intense than I expected. Replay. And Mallory Johnson is the actress who plays Dana in the new series. I would love to hear how she was cast for this role. So much yeah, of, course. of what she does. I, I mean, she talk about acting with your eyes. My goodness. A hundred percent. Yes. Star, complete star. I mean, you know, I, I will say that before I made the show, I would always hear those stories about someone being discovered and be like, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> but Mallory, you know, this is, we were casting kind of peak COVID. And so everything was coming in through self-tapes. And the minute she started speaking on her self-tape, I was like, who is this person? And I kept thinking, you know, I didn't, no one knew who she was. It turns out she was in her final semester, I think, of college at, at Juilliard. And for whatever reason, I just kept coming back to her tape again and again and again. And I realized that she was embodying for me something very, something that I think about as kind of uh, what I always look for in an Octavia Butler heroine, which is someone who feels like incredibly individual. Like, I don't think I've seen anyone like Mallory before or someone who acts like Mallory before. And she's so deeply sensitive and empathic. And she has such incredible emotional range. It just felt like, it felt like in some ways the role was her from the jump, it, hers from the jump. And, you know, she, she, people don't really understand the, how hard it is to, to lead a television show. <laughs> you know, she's someone, especially in the season, who's in, on camera in almost every single scene, which means she was working 14, 16 hour days from time to time. And this was her second job ever out of school. And just watching her navigate that and kind of get stronger and stronger as production evolved was just like a total thrill. I, you know, I think she's, I think she's actually going to be around for a really long time. She's so special. I, I, I wanted to touch on something that stood out to me in just watching the actors, um, especially in the scenes when that take place in the past. And I don't know if it's something you wrote, if it came through in the direction, or if it was something that just happened organically. But there are these moments when the Black actors who play enslaved people embody this this stillness, when there are moments of heightened um, stress or aggression from the white characters, when they feel the danger approaching and everyone gets very, very still. Mm. And it resonated with me, I think, because I have experienced that same type of stillness from certain elder members in my family when we were in certain Mm. situations. And it took me a minute to kind of, what am I, what am I seeing here? And that's what it was. They went into this sort of stillness. And I, I don't know if that's something that I'm making up that's just in my head mm-hmm. um, or, or if that was a deliberate, a deliberate choice or direction. 
I mean, I think that's a testament to those actors who are all kind of drawing from their own emotional lives and histories and probably family observations in terms of telling that story. But it doesn't feel illogical to me, right? It's about you're living in a in a context where your very existence is a crime. <laughs> and so, you know, in moments where it feels like anything can happen, I, I would understand the impulse to try to make yourself as small as possible as, you know, to not draw attention to yourself. And after doing this your whole life, it just becomes who you are. It becomes your behavior. It becomes your personality. Um, but yeah, I do think that there is a real, you know, that especially Tom Whalen, who is the owner of this work encampment slash plantation, you know, he is someone who rules with a kind of, culture of fear, you know, almost like a psychological warfare. Um, everyone is sort of treated like livestock, which was not an uncommon analogy for the time. And when you think about farm animals, you know, when they get frightened, they freeze. Um, and that's just a behavior that's bet beaten slash bred into people, I would imagine, in this, time, in this context. Um, there's a really important sociologist, uh, who wrote a book called Slavery and Social Death, which talks about what, you know, tries to describe or theorize what the experience of an enslaved subject was like at this time. And it was, again, this sense of being a kind of passenger in your own life, that so much of your life was, had to be lived in, in, in a posture of stillness. that he writes solely about race, end quote. And, and that line reminded me of this moment from 1998 when journalist uh, Yana Vent interviewed Toni Morrison. And you will maintain this safe place for yourself, for your art? You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? You know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. Brandon, how do you reflect on both Morrison's answer today, but also whether or not that question has changed for artists? Mm. I mean, unfortunately, the question has not changed, right? And I think, I mean, you're citing Morrison. Morrison and Butler, to me, are like the pantheon, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel very honored to share this hour of radio with her voice, both their voices. But, um, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that the journalist who wrote that profile was was white identified. And I think she misunderstood what I was expressing, which is that the mistake that everyone makes is that race is some sort of siloed hermetic phenomenon in our lives, but actually it is the weather, you know, it is the, it is the air we move through in our interactions with each other. It is the thing that has shaped our understanding of ourselves, how we think about family, how we talk about ourselves as Americans. It's not about just writing about race, but it's about having people understand that race, this kind of gigantic theater game is the texture of our life, of everyone's life. 
And the great works of classic literature that we think of as written by white authors are themselves obsessed with race. I mean, this is Toni Morrison's legacy with playing in the dark, right? To sort of pretend that race is the purview or work or or obligation of Black artists is to be blind to your own participation in in the system and its sort of propagation. And, you know, I think it's been very interesting doing the press for the show because one of the most common questions I'm asked is, you know, does the world need another story about slavery, <laughs> you know? Um, and my question is, first of all, yes. But two, why don't we examine the um, impulse we have to... No one, you know, no one else has asked that but Black authors, right? And there's a million television shows about evil white-identified families doing evil, rich stuff sympathetically. But no one ever says, you know, we don't need any more of those. So I think there is a double standard in, in that Black creatives and anyone who's interested in making sort of non-normative or, you know, global majority-centered work, that they're always having to, like, justify their interest, justify their desire to write about their own history, about their own experience of being. Um, and that somehow it's seen as juvenile when we want to put it before audiences, you know, the reality of how I got here, the reality of my family, how my family got here, the reality of how this country got here. You know, it's very odd experience that you have to kind of become aware of, I think, as a young artist. And I think Morrison did an amazing job of providing a ton of resources through these interviews and these essays, because she acknowledged that that was a thing that she was an editor herself. It was a thing that plagued um, young artists trying to kind of express themselves, you know? Um, so, yeah. I hope that kind of answers the question. Oh, it does. It definitely does. Here's a message we got from Altrina who says, Kindred took me to places within me and my family that made me feel seen and known and how happy and joyous I felt despite the pain of the story. Thanks for sharing that, Altrina. I, I want to mention we, we spoke to Miralee Heifetz, uh, the executor of Octavia Butler's literary estate, last year on this program. And she told us she makes decisions about what happens with the estate by asking herself what is going to lead to the most people reading Butler's work. She also said when deciding whether to approve adaptations, quote, you choose what you hope are the right team to create it. And Brandon, you were, you were chosen. I mean, how? I sure was. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as we, as we wrap up here, we've got about a minute left, but I, there's so many expectations right, around a work like this. So many people are passionate about her work. How are you, how are you feeling about taking this mm. on? I'm, I mean, I feel super honored, to be honest. And I'm going to try not to be emotional about it, but um, I, she's meant so much to me. And I'm so, I would wake up every day being like, how am I the one who gets to be a part of trying to bring these books to their next iteration? And um, I take a lot of uh, inspiration from her because I think about how difficult it was to pioneer in this space. And yeah, super honored. That's Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. He's the showrunner, writer, and executive producer of the TV series Kindred, adapted from Octavia Butler's novel of the same name. The series from FX is streaming now on Hulu. Brandon, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jen.
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.